Today's episode of Cinema Gush is brought to you by the Think of the Children trope. Come on, there's no denying that we live in a heated time. People kind of hate each other these days. People can and will argue about anything. Statistically speaking, by the time you finish this podcast, you will have had 12 separate arguments with different people across various social media platforms. Remember, it's not enough to just share ideas and listen to different perspectives. If you're going to argue, you're going to argue to win. And that's where the Think of the Children trope comes in. You want to win. This is your ticket. It doesn't matter your political, religious, or socioeconomic standing in life. You too can use the Think of the Children trope. All you have to do to guarantee a win, at least in your mind, is to make every argument about kids. We recommend being as shrill as possible. Really channel your Helen Lovejoy on this one. It works every time. Unless your opponent does the same. Then, then I don't know. I don't know. Compare them to Hitler or something. Yeah. You know, scratch that. Cinema Gush was founded specifically to combat all the negativity out there. We're going to drop this trope as a sponsor. You guys are worth it. But, you know, help us out. Uh, like and subscribe. And now on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another excellent episode of Cinema Gush. This is episode 11. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm here with Brendan. We got hey. Professor Tom Provost here. I'm so excited for this episode. This was a movie I'd never seen, let alone heard of, let alone could even track down. Uh, but first, you can find Tom's work at cinemalanguage.org. He's got an awesome charity at bagsandgrace.com. And you can watch his movie, The Presence, on either Apple or Amazon. Or if you're one of those few people who still get Netflix DVDs, you can get it there. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. It is great to have you here. Um, I wanted to start with kind of an off-the-wall question before we even talk about the movie. Professor, why do you think it is that some of these great movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s are just harder to track down? Like this movie, I had kind of a difficult time tracking down. Do you have any theories as to why these are harder to find, these great older films? I, You know, I just think that a lot of the forums that we used to have, Netflix being one of them that had every movie, they just don't care anymore because Netflix obviously is much more interested in their brand new content. They hardly have any sure. movies. Yeah. Amazon Prime has become my source of doing it. Um, and I actually mm-hmm. can watch China Syndrome on Prime because I bought it. What what happens though with a lot of these, It's and it's kind of a long, you could do a whole podcast on this, but it's a rights issue. And so, mm-hmm. for instance, one of my favorite movies, Red Rock West, that I teach all the time, yes. dis- it disappeared for years because the rights got kind of mangled and whoever owns the movie asks Netflix for too much money and Netflix is like, I'm not going to pay that. And so some of these things just languish f- for years without, yeah, without anybody doing them. You know, a, a great example of this, uh, when, at least when I was growing up, was the five Hitchcock films from the 50s, including Rear Window and Vertigo, were gone out of circulation for about 20 years. Oh, be- no. Yeah, because of the I rights didn't know that issue. Happened. And when, when I was in college, they finally got the rights and they appeared on the big screen. It was the first time anybody had seen them in years and it was really exciting. But wow. Yeah, It's a Wonderful Life also was not available for like 20 years. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's ridiculous. And uh, fun fact, uh, folks uh, Red Rock West is uh, one of the few Nicolas Cage movies that's in the uh, 90 percentile on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's a 93. <laughs> it is a great movie. Nicolas Cage, so. good or bad? Another discussion. Um, well, we should introduce <laughs> our movie. <laughs> yeah, Brennan, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned it already, but um, we are talking today about the China Syndrome. And, and so, it, Tom, right? Yes. 
So I, I, I'm sure you're aware from the conversations that I was nervous about this movie. I'm, I'm very, very much in favor of nuclear energy. And so I was a little scared to watch this one. And I am very pleased to say I was very wrong. This movie was great. It was like, Wasn't great. it? Oh my gosh. It's one of the, like, we're talking about this a bit off camera. Just my wife is, she loves the popcorn fair. She loved the last, or not the last Jedi. We'll talk about that later. She loved the rise of the Skywalker. Her favorite movie is Twister. And she kind of came into this movie a little before the halfway point, And she sat down and watched the rest of it and was absolutely gripped. So I was it, thrilled right along with it's her. It's such good, just character drama. And uh, you know what? I could gush, but I really want to hear you gush. What, tell tell us, right. why do you love this movie? All right. So I've got to give you a little bit of history. So I'm going to date myself, but I'm a child of the seventies. It's the seventies movies. I love the best because it's what I grew up on. My family, mom, dad, my brother and I would go to movies quite often and we all had different tastes. So like, a very famous night in our family, the summer of 1976. Mom and I, we went to the same theater, but Mom and I went to see The Omen because we like scary movies. <laughs> oh, nice. My brother and my dad went to see Outlaw Josie Wales because they hated scary movies. And that was a significant night for me because I was 10. And it was my first R-rated movie. And it was like I almost wet my pants. Like, And I love that movie, but it scared me to death, right? <laughs> um, and then late in the later seventies, uh, my brother, I think was just off getting high. He was in high school. So my dad and my mom and I on Sunday afternoons would go to the movies and I had these two experiences that were pretty amazing, which is that when you're a film nerd from birth, I think probably the way we all are, it's very mm-hmm. hard to see a movie and not know anything about it. And yeah. twice, yeah. twice on those Sunday afternoons, and interestingly, they both starred Jane Fonda, we walked into movies we had heard were good and we knew nothing about them. So we walked into the China Syndrome, didn't know anything about it, and I thought, like, the last 20 minutes of that movie, I can't breathe when I watch it. I have big justice issues. And so when the movie starts going south and the bad things start happening and it doesn't seem like everything's going to work out. Like I was, I just, I couldn't breathe. And I still, I, I actually showed it to some friends the other night because of this, you hadn't seen it. And they were the same way. They were just like, that was so gripping and suspenseful. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, so there are a lot of reasons, like from a craft standpoint, I think it's a masterpiece, but um, it's just so well-made and so well-crafted, but it really pushes my buttons and my justice issue buttons Um and it's also, Brendan, as you were saying, it's very complex. You think it's this anti-nuclear movie, and it's not. Sure. It's not at all. It, yeah, it's it's got these layers that I was was not expecting and just reveled in. It was so great to watch them peel all those apart. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you can't beat Jack Lemmon. My goodness, he's just. Oh, he's the like he was the exactly. star of the show to me. He, I, I was in love with every scene he was in. Yeah, that line, I love that plant, it's my whole life. It's like, we got yeah. somebody who has major stakes in this game and loves what he does. And, and that's just it. Is That's why I related with him so much, because I do believe in this technology, but at the same time, he's saying, like, I believe in this, this is important, and yet we have to be accountable, and we got to do the right thing, and we got to be smart, and oh, it's great. It well, great. and if you think about it, I mean, he's the hero of the movie. He believes in the plant. I think they're very even-handed in showing... The positives of the power and, you know, some of the people who are protesting are nuts, sure. right? They look kind of ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but as he keeps saying in the movie, the system works. The problem is not the plant, is not the, the, the technology. It's a sure. big business problem because they built the plant knowing that there was a mistake in it. 
right? Right. If, if, if they had built the plant right, they would have no problems because, as he says, the system works. So, But doing it right takes money and time. and Yes, and wanting to invest in especially uh, safety procedures as well. You know, it was six years old, but, I mean, if they would have just made that simple replacement, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had a movie, right? Exactly. All right, so, so I'll just dive in because I have all these things I want to dive in. Please, yeah. As as you guys know, as as writers and filmmakers, one of the most difficult things in writing, in movies in particular, is exposition. You always have to set things Mm. up, and exposition is the most boring thing in the world. And for this movie to work, we, the audience, very quickly have to understand not one, but two environments, television news and how it works. And we have Mm. to know the basics of how a nuclear power plant works, or the movie won't work. Sure. I, I call it send the audience to school. And there are great examples of this in movies. The most famous, or I would say to me the best, is in Jurassic Park, where they get on a ride. And the movie just stops <laughs> for four minutes, and you see this cartoon that explains how the dinosaurs work, right? So one way you can do exposition is to just stop and throw it at the audience. Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie, it just opens with this long prologue that just gets it all out of the way. But what's more effective, Minority Report is also a great example of this, because in Minority Report, you also have to set up pre-crime in the whole kind of futuristic world, is in China Syndrome and Minority Report, they take these opening that are suspense sequences. So you don't even realize you're getting exposition. You're watching something that's really thrilling. And by the end of it, in Minority Report, this amazing 15-minute sequence where Tom Cruise is trying to stop a murder. Here, this accident happens, the nuclear power plant, and the TV reporters are watching this go down, and Jack Nick, I mean, Jack Lemmon and Wilfred Brimley, this made him famous, um, are struggling in, you know, you're not even realizing that you're getting exposition. It's so smart and so well done. Yeah. So that by the, yeah. to- by the time this, they fix the problem, and Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas rush back to the, to the, TV station, you have learned everything you need to know about the nuclear power plant and you didn't even realize it. Because you're just in there, yeah. And in that same sequence, you're just as helpless because you know about as much as they know. Exactly. And they can just tell that something is wrong. Something's not going right. Well, and that that comes down to like brilliant acting and directing because even though we have learned slightly the basics of a nuclear power plant, most of what those guys in the big... Uh, forget what you would call it, the big control room. Like the control room, yeah. What, the, what they're saying doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. Feed water and valves and all this kind of stuff. But, and it's important to realize this as a writer and a director, the way it's said and the emotions that come with it tell us, the audience, how to feel. We know if high water's good. We know if low water's bad. We, yeah. And when they hit that stuck valve and it drops... It's less my understanding of why the stuck valve is bad. It's Wilfred Brimley and Jack Lemmon's horrific reaction to it that makes my chest tight. And I'm like, oh, my God, like the world is going to end because of how they're, they're acting and reacting. So well done. So well done. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, looking back. At, I don't want to say older movies because I don't want to date anybody. But it's interesting watching these films where the soundtrack isn't doing the duty of the feelings. This is the note that I wrote down was that I kind of sat in my editor's chair a little bit and thought there's no music. There's no Hans Zimmer strings. There's no insane amounts of cuts. It's just pure character energy. And that happens again later with Jack when he has them put the rods to turn the plant back on. Um, There's just, 
it kind of sits with you in the same way. I guess a modern example would be No Country for Old Men. That's the soonest one I can think of. Sure. Uh, just where there isn't a soundtrack that's driving how you should be feeling. It's purely based on how the characters are reacting that gives us, like you said, that tightness in the chest. Well, and very famously, the movie literally has no score. There is no soundtrack at all. The only music you hear in the movie is if it's coming from a radio. What is it called? Diegetic music. It's, it's, it's music that the characters are hearing because it's on the radio or when she goes to the bar. Otherwise, there is literally no score, and it gives the movie much. Uh, it gives it a documentary feel, which I think yeah. kind of adds to the suspense as it goes through because it just feels more real without any kind of soundtrack at all. Absolutely, and you know I love her introduction as well. I I felt like there was something with the theme of the first thing time that we actually see her. It's actually with the mirror from her makeup kit. So the first thing we're seeing is the mirror reflecting back at us. Is almost as if we're going to now be entering through her character through the rest of this film. Um, she had such a great entrance, and I mean she act. I mean every bit of acting in this movie was just excellent. Well, I I think I I also just just at that moment at the beginning I love that we didn't have a bunch of establishing shots. We're just in the studio. We're right? behind the camera, <laughs> yes, the screens. Yes. We're editing. I mean, it's just I don't know. It Two screens live uh, on air and the pre the the pre one before you go on air. Just both of those we, screens. We mentioned together. last week one of my favorite movies, and it reminded me a lot of Good Night and Good Luck. Like it feels like you're soaked in this TV culture, and yeah, it's so effective. Well, I I, just, I love that technical aspect. That it dives you right in there. I because the same thing is true of I think the the TV studio, right? You need to understand how a TV studio works very quickly, and it really brings you into that without much wasted time. I mean, you really do get that sense of the how stories are being developed, how people are being sent out on them. You get you get Jane Fonda's character, her striving very quickly. I, I to to get more real news stories. I. I just think it was very And you're getting effective. a little bit of the exposition, too, because you hear the guys in the studio saying just, like, they're they're kind of ripping on her the whole time yeah. that she's getting set up. And you're kind of wondering, is she hearing this or not, you know? So, the, the, like, the first thing they say is about her dyeing her hair, wasn't it? And, and right at that moment, like, right at the beginning, somebody says, does she like it? And there's a voice that goes, she'll do anything we tell her to. Oh. <laughs> but they don't realize quite who they're dealing with because she really starts to fight back. That I mean, the, and the movie is filled with such... Minor details I love. She is a television reporter who is never home, so she has the perfect pet, which is the turtle. The turtle. <laughs> That's right. It that needs no attention and only has to eat every like four days or whatever. There's mm-hmm. there's so many nice and then she even like in that scene where she's listening to her very old and ancient uh, voice, you know, recording machine, where do I the voice mm-hmm. message machine? Um, and there's this one call that comes in and the guy, he's like, Hey, remember me? I'm the American airlines pilot. I'm in town for three days. And then he's gone. It's just like this marvelous little character detail of the life that she leads, you know, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. there are little things like that all the time. When you're in Jack Lemon's apartment or his townhouse towards the end, the phone rings and his reaction tells you that phone never rings. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't sure. have family. He doesn't oh, have a life. Yeah. And he's like, it freaks them out when the phone rings because it never rings. They, and they don't point these things out. They're not obvious the way a lot of filmmakers would like hammer them home today. They're just there for you to pick up or not. And that's what they tell you too. You know, I, I, I feel like I take more meetings than not where it's just like you have so much space to put things on the nose, but you get so much more when things are subtle. For, for example, one thing that I got was right after the incident happens and they're going back and to the news station and they're not going to put it out 
The director wants them to put the story on hold when she's getting her makeup done. And the, the voiceover at the news station says, this is Channel 3 Update, Southern California's most complete newscast. That timing is so great because here we go, not being complete. We're absolutely being incomplete. You know, it, just those little things just are excellent. Well, in, from a era perspective, it's so interesting because in that era, Peter Donat, who plays the head of the station, won't put the film on TV because it would be irresponsible and they would get sued. And in, it, from an objective standpoint, he's completely right, but he's portrayed as the villain in the movie, or one of. Whereas you know today, you know today, CNN or Fox or who, who MSNBC, they would put that film on so fast your head would spin, right? Yeah, look at Nightcrawler, right? Crawlers are great. Yeah, we, we'll blur their faces, but the blood is still there. Like, oh gosh, yeah. Like, if, if anything, people today are just like, oh yeah, he's the good guy because he's going to put it on. Well, you know, uh, one of my favorite films, I think maybe the best, second best screenplay ever written after Chinatown is All the President's Men. And it's so fascinating to watch that movie and see how the press works. Ben Bradley, played famously by Jason Robards, won an Oscar for it, will not print anything unless they have two on-the-record sources. Not one, but two. Whereas <laughs> oh, now, in the New York Times prints things with just anonymous sources and nothing else. It's just such a wild difference in the media from back then to today. So You're making me think that we have a, we got a TV series on our hand here. <laughs> a, a modern update of all the president's men. It would play uh, out very differently. So Yes, it would. I, I, you know, so you go from there and they have the newscast and she's, she's just doing these fluff pieces and then she goes back to the bar and like that nice coincidence of her running into to, to Mr. Diabetes and to with Jack and, and they finally get to have that real conversation there. And, you know, she's, it's, it was nice to see that whole idea that, you know, and it's still, I would say it's, it's still very prevalent to this day that the local newscaster still is kind of a mini celebrity, just where they're at and everyone's so excited that she's there and she's not... She's still, I mean, she's very much seen to them as this is the puff piece person and here sign me this autograph. And whereas if she was the hard hitting fella, like it would be a much different story. But that's really where things start to take off. Yeah. Well, and as her boss says, you're great at what you do. And when you and Jane Fonda, again, great actress. I mean, when she gives those puff news reports, they're a blast to watch. And you're like, OK, I understand sure. why they don't want you to do hard news because you and they even say their ratings are going you're up good at it because of her. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but then she finally gets her chance uh, right. at the end, which is so great. Mm-hmm. I, I, one of my favorite line readings in that movie is uh, it's towards the middle and they just had the huge fight about not where the, the where she kicks Michael Douglas under the table and he's even like, kick me under the table and they have the big fight. Right, and right, right. right. And she walks out and her, her supervisor comes up and he goes, where are you going? And, I can't do it the way she says it. She's like, oh, I'm going to the zoo, Mac. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Straight and angry about everything that's going on. You know, she's... she's but we do she's... learn later that she delivers mm-hmm. the Tiger Birthday Party story really well. Don't, don't they mention oh, yeah. that later? That she does oh, a yeah. great job of it anyways. Yeah. It's the whale one she doesn't do. Right. But yeah. But Correct. Yeah. Well, what was the one where she ripped the head anchor, and then as soon as they went off screen, like, or as soon as they cut from, you know, it's a commercial. It's a hot like, air really, comment, yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and he very comment, much yeah, deserved yeah. it. That was the balloon that landed on top of the camper. That's what it was. That's right. <laughs> 
I was wondering too, like, you know, watching the movie, especially one of the opening shots when it shows kind of the traffic, I was like, it's good to know that traffic was just as bad on the 405 back in the <laughs> 70s as it is today. Like, that was really refreshing, especially for my heart. Um, and this movie was nominated for quite a few Oscars, you know, Jack Lemmon for leading role, Jane Fonda for leading role, um, Mike T. Eston James for the screenplay and art direction. And it didn't win those, but. I mean, that was in 1980. Like, what a tough year. Like, there was an insane amount of competition during that time. Not to not to pivot away from the movie, but like we talked about before we started recording, that was the year that All That Jazz came out. And so so what do you think, Tom? Like, do you think do you think China Syndrome should have beat Dustin Hoffman and Kramer versus Kramer? Or what, what do you think? You know what's fascinating about Kramer versus Kramer is it's basically a TV movie, right? But anytime I'll watch it, you're just amazed at the craftsmanship of it. I mean, Robert Benton is, he, he directed one of, wrote and directed one of my favorite films, Places in the Heart, top 10 movie for me. Um, but Kramer versus Kramer is just so damn well made. And it is a movie that I don't care how cynical you are, those last 10 minutes rip your heart out, right? And Absolutely. so like, like another great example of this is Rocky versus Network. I mean, I love Rocky. And I remember seeing it live, you know, in the theater and just seeing it over and over again because it's so great. Network is a better movie than Rocky. But Rocky won that year partly because of how it makes you feel. And Rocky's a much darker movie than I think people even remember. It's, it's not that upbeat of a film, but the country was going through such, dark, such a dark time then post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, that even a darker kind of film like Rocky was viewed as very uplifting. Um, and so I think Kramer probably won over things that might have been more deserving just because of the way it made people feel. Yeah, that was the era. Kramer versus Kramer, all that jazz, Apocalypse Now, uh, Breaking Away and Norma, uh, Norma Ray were the five for Best Picture. Yeah, and Breaking Away was definitely the dark horse there. I I'd certainly would have put China Syndrome in over Breaking Away. But. Absolutely. Yeah. So sorry, folks, quick aside, I just had to talk about the, uh, the award stuff. So um, I wanted to also throw out there that once the bar sequence is over, we kind of cut to inside of the plant and we see things and there is just this utterly gorgeous matte painting. Y- yes. And it just reminded me how much I kind of miss those. Si- yes. So, okay. Right. Right. You kind of miss. The, I, I turned to my wife and say, things. that's some good matte painting. I know exactly the shot you're talking about. It's when he's in, he's in the suit, the hazmat suit, right? Exactly. And it made me, you know, right away, I was just like, oh, here we go. I got a New Hope vibes just all over again. It just, oh, just that steady shot. And it's gorgeous. Just, oh, I wish there was more of that and less CGI. I mean, it's something that I think most people don't notice, but they really did a great job of setting the scene and establishing a nuclear power plant when it seemed very clear they didn't have access to a full nuclear power plant to film. But it looked great. It looked convincing. I mean, you believed you were there and you were worried about radiation every time that Geiger counter clicked. Those, those artists, the, quote, old-time matte painters, were they were just phenomenal craftsmen and artists. Uh, two of my favorites are in Hitchcock movies. In North by Northwest, the UN wouldn't let them film anywhere near it. And so when Cary Grant walks mm-hmm. into the UN at, at the end of Act One, there's a stunning matte painting where if you see it 35 millimeter on screen, there's no way you're going to know it's a painting. And there's an even there's an even better one in the birds where Tippy Hendren is out in the boat towards the beginning, and she's just in a boat in that tank in the Universal backlot. And the matte painting they draw around her it's it's just one of the most beautiful pieces of art like you can see. So I'm with you. I love that stuff much better than CGI. 
it's a little more organic, I think. It feels very grounded. I think it serves the story very well, too. Uh, you just it, It's weird. I feel like I'm there more than almost even if, if they had just pretended they were in some sort of fake plant. I mean, it, 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 it felt operatic almost in, it, in the way that it's, it's presented. There, there's almost – it actually so it feels almost like he's walking into a cathedral when he's walking in there. There's, there's high walls. There's these giant structures. I just – I it's kind of scary, but yet – I don't know. I thought it was great. Well, I mean, that's that whole feeling you get. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I was just, I think it's, when I list like my top 20 scary movies, this one's on it. I mean, I find it a very frightening suspense. Yeah. yeah. It's not like a horror movie, but it just, it gets under your skin. And those last 20 minutes are so devastating and painful and suspenseful. Anyway, uh, I was, if I can tangent one time, because I just love this story. That's what Please. we're here for is, is t- like the whole point of our podcast is man. Like when you say like, Oh, I could go on like, this is your chance, man. Like you go on. I can go on. So in North by Northwest at the end of act one, Cary Grant has to go to the UN and the UN would not let them film inside or outside. So Hitchcock, who's, you know, the most famous filmmaker probably in the world at that time and can do anything with ever much money. He had to be a guerrilla filmmaker. And so they parked in a van across the street and had the camera in the back of the van. And Cary Grant got in a cab and said, take me to the UN. And he gets out of the cab and walks in. And it's all done with no permits or anything. What? <laughs> There's a hilarious moment where he walks by this older man at the top of the stairs. And you see the older man go, hey, was that Cary Grant? No, it could have been Cary Grant. And it's in the movie. It's, really <laughs> it's a genuine reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Genuine reaction. That's oh, time amazing. for a rewatch North by Northwest. Sheesh. I, I don't think my wife's that. seen that one. I got to do that with her. It also has, okay. And I want, I it also has one of the most famous film gaffes ever, which is towards the end when they're in the cafeteria at Mount Rushmore, something happens that when you know to look for it, it's one of the funniest things you'll ever see. It's amazing. And it's in the movie. So, Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. You can you can you can find it online. It's all over online. But it involves it involves a gunshot and a little boy who was tired of sitting as an extra hearing this gun go off over and over again. It's I'm that quite fine. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Uh, so I, and so we you know we get that intro. Oh, go ahead, Brendan. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, like, you know, not to pull right back to the China Syndrome, but, you know, we start getting to the point that there actually is something wrong with the plant. We bring in the utilities company. We have Wilford in that, you know, I think it was six or eight hours worth. Like, he had to sit in that meeting and just be pegged with questions. And turns out, clean bill of health after all, you know? So there wasn't a movie after all. We're all fine. But no, no, not at all. Not at all. That scene when he's talking about how he's worried about being thrown under the bus is the moment when I realized that, and this is to my shame, but I was not aware that Wilfred Brimley is as good an actor as he is. I just know him as the diabetes guy. That's, but he is so, yeah. so good. I don't know if you've ever heard the diabetes remix on YouTube, Professor, but it is utterly hysterical. And that—that that is all I knew him from as well. But as- He made a lot of money being the Quaker Oats guy. He, he was That's the right. spokesman oh, for Quaker sure, Oats. Sure. But this movie, he's so damn good in this movie. And, of course, the final scene centers on he and Jane Fonda that it skyrocketed his career. And shortly after this, he did Absence of Malice and was, again, killer as, like, somebody who came in to fix the problem. And then after those two movies, his career was set. And he worked all the... And then, you know, Cocoon ended up being, like, this phenomenal hit. So he was kind of one of those people like Olympia Dukakis or John Mahoney that had struggled as an actor and then all of a sudden in their 50s became very famous. 
Absolutely. I, I, I don't, you know, we're jumping around a ton and I want to keep jumping around because that moment at the end when he has that interview with Jane Fonda, it reminded me of uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington when Senator Payne finally has his that was the limit moment where he's pushed to the very end, the, the straw that breaks the donkey's back. And he he's like, no, he was my friend. And no, he wasn't insane. And no, he wasn't drunk. And all of those things reminded me of Mr. Smith when he's just like, no, he's the boy was right. Like that whole sequence, just I was... Oh, I was shaking all over. I got chills up and down when he finally just gave in. And you don't think that's going to happen. I, I will go back. Um, when I was eight, uh, my mom watched Chinatown with me on TV. It was the ABC movie of the week or whatever. And so we watched it. And it devastated me. It was the first time I, as a person, and I had been reading and watching movies since I was you know, a little baby, um, I had never encountered a narrative where it didn't work out at the end. And so when Chinatown ends, and I think it's like the worst movie in the history of movies, when, when that movie ended so badly, I melted down. And she had to talk to me for like an hour to calm me down. And I remember her very distinctively saying, Tom, look, part of the point of this movie is that bad people, not only do they do bad things, but they often get away with it. And this movie is trying to show you that you need to spend your life trying to stop that from happening. And I wow. already had justice issues and they... That movie, you know, just play. I, I, I can't look at John Houston ever because because he's so wonderfully horrible and grotesque in that movie. Um, but so a few years later, when I'm sitting in the theater watching China Syndrome during that last 10 minutes, I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to end just as bad as Chinatown. I'm not going to be able to take it so that they they don't wrap everything up. And it's not a happy ending, but that you get Wilfred Brimley's final little turn it just enables you to go out of the theater without, you know, feeling like you're coming out of Chinatown. Anyway, I, I yeah, gotta be no, honest, no, you're though. absolutely right. Yeah, go ahead, Brandon. No, I mean, at the end of this movie, I there was a couple of minutes there. I was convinced we were going to have a meltdown. Everybody was going to die, and the credits were going to roll. I mean, they sell that. The fact that we got Wilfred Brimley to have that, I mean, that was that was a relief. But they re- that that's a freaking scary ending. So, so what's one of my favorite moments in any movie ever is from the end of this movie, and. I'm not going to spoil it if people haven't seen it, but it's, I can feel it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. And that's when all hell breaks loose, right? But he's like, I can feel it. And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh. I was going to curse, but I don't know who's listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, yeah, uh, absolutely. Like that sequence when, so we had watched the trailer on YouTube, and I, it was whatever trailer one meant. Um, and, that was another thing I noticed too is movies before a certain time period, like they kind of gave away most of the movie when they would have the trailer and that whole sequence when things start shaking, um, we definitely thought it was something else. But then when you actually see the movie and you mean like, oh, the context definitely is different from what we thought the trailer was, you're just, you're on the edge of your seat, just kind of waiting as things start shaking and things start, you know, falling apart. Like it just, oh, it all came together so wonderfully well. It's so good. It's so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they really were. William Goldman calls them old, oh shit moments. And yes, I'm from Texas. So shit isn't a curse word. It's just what happens. But um, <laughs> William Goldman Amen. always said, if you can get one, oh shit moment, you're great. And if you can get two in a movie, then that's amazing. And, and you know, there are certain movies out there that have even three or four, but this one has a couple of really good, oh, oh shit moments um, that are very powerful and affect you deeply. So, well, let's see. So the first one would have been when they're in there and they're they're watching it happen and they see Jack's panic. So that'd be one for I think sure. When that the dial second. drops is the biggest one in that scene. Yeah, 
Exactly. Yep. The lowering of the rods, trying to bring it up to 110 and the nervousness there. That's definitely another one. And then, you know, the ending for sure would be number three. So this one definitely got away with at least, at the very least, it got three. I also love that moment in the first thing where Jane Fonda looks over and she realizes, um, she goes to Michael Douglas and she's like, are you filming? And he's like, yeah, I am. And yeah, like, yeah. you realize he's getting the whole thing on tape. It's like, oh, it's awesome. And speaking of which, we haven't talked about him much either. I saw a recent interview, uh, well, not recent, it was a very old interview with uh, Michael Douglas, who plays Richard Adams in the film, he's the cameraman. Uh, He talks about it took three years to even get anyone to even trust in this movie being made, um, which was fascinating as well, like a little bit of the behind the scenes. I believe the budget was somewhere around six. Um, It grossed a very healthy amount, but then... I think one of the more popular bits of trivia surrounding this movie is that 12 days later, there was that meltdown over in, I think it was Pennsylvania. Um, which, very famous, three mile right there. which also involved a stuck valve. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And that helped kick the box office money back up again as well. So, and I should Douglas, say, yeah. as again, supporter of nuclear energy, about a banana's worth of radiation came out of it. <laughs> about a banana? <laughs> yeah. Yep, about, a, you. about if you were if you were within like five ten miles, you got about a banana's extras worth of radiation. So, mm-hmm. Brendan, I also am pro nuclear power, but have you watched Chernobyl? I have. I loved it. Oh my god! But I had the same reservations. That's one of the best TV shows I've ever but, seen. But again, I don't feel like Chernobyl was was almost really about nuclear energy. It was no. about the feelings of humans. Exactly. Exactly. As Jack says in the movie, the system works. Right. And. I guess that's why I feel so strongly about it, and that's what would it's that I feel like this is such a great benefit to society that it it it, it crushes me when people take the shortcuts and break a system that works and make everybody scared of it. So yeah. as, as a as a coincidence that I loved, they're, they're they're watching the protesters, and that one guy has that funny line about how are you going to blow dry your hair, lady? You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. Right after we finished this movie, my favorite, I'm a Patreon supporter of this YouTube channel, is Kyrgyzats. Do you know this at all? It's in a nutshell. Great YouTube science channel. I, when I was a science teacher, I showed it all the time. But we'll the throw video the show that they notes, produced folks. yesterday that came out, and I was watching the movie, and I watched their video, is how many people has nuclear energy killed? You're kidding. That's the, that the just video. came out as you watched this. And optimistically, 4,000 people have died from nuclear energy, radiation. Pessimistically, it's like seventy to a hundred thousand. Oh wow! Fossil fuels kill four million every year. <laughs> so I, and and and, and I that, that's just it. Is 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 the humans need to take this seriously? But we also, yeah, I I'm such a big proponent of that, and I and and I found myself getting angry while watching the movie at corporate corruption. The same way in Chernobyl, I was angry at communists' failings, and and and. I, it does such a great job of capturing that. I, I, like I said, I was worried about the movie because I feel strongly about this, but it hit every mark I wanted to because it really does highlight where the problems are, and the problems are with us. Agree. And, and if you watch the trailer, uh, the moment in the trailer that I thought they were going to hit on more, because if you look at the trailer now, folks, it seems like this is going to be a, a nuclear disaster kind of movie. I thought it was all about putting a plant in Southern California where earthquakes are more prevalent. That's what the trailer makes you think, in my opinion, what the movie's going to be about. So that leads to a whole different discussion, which is where I'm going to give you a hard time. Like, why do you watch trailers? Trailers ruin everything. Like, 
So I'm glad you brought this up because in previous yeah, episodes, I talked about, talked about for this. about five years, I stopped watching every trailer ever. So, and this is spoilers for Batman v Superman, which we talk about in at least we've, three podcasts we've at this spoiled point. spoiled this because um, of this very issue. Exactly. So I had stopped watching trailers for a long time and specifically it was Shutter Island that ruined it for me because it's an amazing book and there's a moment in the trailer that gives away the ending. So because of that, I stopped watching trailers. So I had no idea Wonder Woman was not Batman versus Superman. So when I saw it, I was genuinely shocked and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Holy crap. So... Um, and I still genuinely try to not watch trailers until after I've seen the movie. I only saw this trailer because I couldn't find this movie anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, see, I, because I own it, I didn't realize this. So it's truly not available. Like, it's not. So, so I found I it on Xfinity. On you can rent it on yeah, Amazon. It is on Amazon. But we, we had also talked about doing the movie um, Jane, I think it is. I can't find that anywhere which is another jane fonda movie um, oh you mean julia sorry julia sorry julia so on xfinity you can search by the actor or the actress yeah and so that's how i found china syndrome but julia is not even listed as a movie on xfinity and let me tell you that's that's the other one in 1977 my mom and dad and i wandered into julia knew nothing about it one of the great directors in the history of hollywood fred zinnemann one of his last movies it was up for 11 oscars it won five or six, including Best Screenplay. Jason Robards won Best Supporting Actor two years in a row. Uh, All the President's Men, 76, and then Julia, 77. It is a phenomenal movie. Like, that movie haunts me even today. It's so good. And it's, the first half is about writing. And that's what's, it's very much about the writer's life, which is wonderful. So, and it's also, Mm -hmm. Douglas Slocum was the DP, and it's truly one of the most beautiful movies of all time. Every shot is like a painting. So if you get a chance to see it, hopefully it'll come back and be available because it is a breathtaking movie. It's- I think it is on Amazon. Like So when I just looked it up before the show, I actually see on Amazon it says now available on Prime. So maybe I can purchase it or somehow, but I will for sure be watching that one as well. And, well, and yeah. to tangent a little more. 19, no we can't do this again. Yeah. 1977 oh. is interesting because it was known as the year of the woman. The f- mm-hmm. Four of the five Best Picture nominees were about women. The Goodbye Girl, Annie Hall... Julia and the Turning Point, and then there was this random little movie called Star Wars that was up. <laughs> <laughs> I was Tell about to more. say Annie Hall. Oh man, that movie's so good. A lot of nerds are very upset that Annie Hall won, but Annie Hall is one of the most innovative movies ever made. So, as somebody who loves the hell out of Star Wars, like no, Annie Hall was the correct decision. <laughs> that movie is so but so wait, funny to have, this day. Have you seen the Last Jedi? Have you seen that one? It's pretty good. Who me? No. <laughs> Have you seen The Last Jedi, Professor? I was not a fan. Okay, that's okay. We, we have to mention every podcast because we, we love the hell out of podcast. Ryan Johnson. There were parts so. that I liked, and I like his directing a lot. Like, Brick's one of my favorite movies. Um, yes, yes mine too. But we, we really the, don't have to get into it. I was really just screwing with everything. The whole Vegas, <laughs> yeah. the whole Vegas <laughs> subplot, which is Ugly. has yeah. no meaning whatsoever... At that point, that's when it's I just a, lost interest in the movie. I was just like, "Why am I being forced to watch this anyway?" Yeah, it's time to refill the popcorn. But I agree um, with you. But that was the only concession I'll make because I love every moment that happens after the Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but back to the China Syndrome. I'm trying to remember yes. what the name of the guy was in the van because that was also very gripping as well when he's trying to deliver the X-rays. And you know, there's. I think a lot of memes that I see when it comes to like car crashes often reference like old seventies 
or 60s or even 50s, like car crashes of cars going off of cliffs and things like that. But when I saw his go down, like it was such a heart racing moment because you watch the car turn over and over and you know the van that pushed him from behind and there was no way that he could have gone out of it. Just again, another edge of the seat moment because you have the, um, the nuclear Q&A going on with the guy saying, I just need 30 more minutes for Hector to get there. But then the van goes off and oh, just that was another sequence that absolutely had my heart. And again, like you mentioned earlier, there's no soundtrack here. And so your mind kind of fills it in with your own, you know, nervousness and heartbeats and things like that. And again, I I just wish there was more of that. You know, Jack just... Lemmon's car trace. I mean, yeah, that's I think really that, good. Yes, that oh sequence gosh, is yes. so intense and it's so subdued. I mean, there's no dialogue. It's just his eyes moving back and forth as he's processing information, and it's so I, well done. The and you're starting work, to wonder. Yeah, you're starting to wonder yeah. if that other car is actually like the car that's tailing him or not. Like, ah, oh. you feel paranoid with yeah. him. There's a great mm-hmm. shot where he goes into the post office to do the handoff to Hector of the documents. And you don't go in the post office with him. And when the post, he goes in and when the post office door closes on him, he's inside. You see the black sedan pull up in the reflection of the door. It's gorgeously done. Mm. It's so, and it's, that's the kind of stuff where it works much better on the big screen than on your iPhone, you know, because you don't see that on your iPhone. But Right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I, I assigned Bridge in the River Kwai and one guy was like, I didn't like it. And I was like, did you have a big enough screen? He was like, I watched it on my iPhone, and we had about an hour-long meltdown lecture. From <laughs> oh. Good, good. You know, we, we had a, I did a web series a couple of years – well, I guess it was just this past year called Long Walks on the Beach. And it's interesting watching on Vimeo. Like, they'll, tr- they'll tell you how people viewed it, and like 87% of all people who watched my web series watched it from their phone, and only about 3% watched it on a television, 7% watched it on a tablet. Like, it's hard to – I don't want to say talk down, but it's hard to have that conversation of, you know, a movie is better on the bigger screen. But people don't see them on the big screen anymore. And so I swear I'm not bringing this up because it's my movie, but the movie you were talking about, The Presence, that I directed, I was Mm -hmm. younger and wanted to see it on the big screen. I was a horse's ass. And so I filmed it uh, like ultra wide screen. It's wider than The English Patient. Whoa! <laughs> and and when you see it in the theater, it really works. Like I was in a, I was at a film festival, and it won best best picture. And the the guy who he had just seen it on his computer, and he came up to me afterwards, the head of the festival, and he goes, "Wow, that movie really sings on the big screen." The problem is though, nobody sees that movie on the big screen. They watch it on their iPad or on their iPhone, and it doesn't work. And so I've had long conversations with fellow directors about, okay, if you know out of the gate that most people are going to watch your movie at best on their 50-inch screen, but probably on their iPad or their iPhone, maybe we have to start using more close-ups and direct the movie in a different way so that it works on that different medium. kind of sucks, but it's true. Yeah, sure. that's an excellent. No, that's an excellent point. I mean, we've, we've talked about in past episodes, just, you know, we are, we're diehard theater people. Um, I, I don't brag about this, but I, I did pretty nicely with the AMC stock surge recently. Um, but I, you know, I could not wait to run to IMAX the second I was allowed to this past year and go see Tenet. You know, we could. There's always a conversation about how Tenet was, but just like I loved that movie for the experience of being in IMAX and just finally being back in a movie theater again. So I will, I, you know. I think Brendan and sure. I, am, and, and Brendan, you can tell Tom about, you know, working at the movie theater, but just, I will always be a theater guy to the, to end. the end. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I worked at, at, a, at a 
independent theater, but one of the rooms we had is a very small screen. I mean, it's tiny. It's it's I, I, when I say tiny, it's like ten feet, but but it's an intimate experience because you're still right up to the screen. It's like you're 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 sitting with the movie. Is it? it so it, it doesn't. Ha- it's not even so much the size of the screen as it the presentation that I think you lose at home sometimes. I mean, honestly, I don't watch as many new movies at home because I. Don't I, there's so many things that can distract you, and when you're in this theater, you're almost held hostage to the movie in the best way possible. Yes. A great example of that to me is a movie I saw five times in the theater, and I will never watch again because I'll never be able to see it the way I saw it, which was the Neutron in 3D. Oh, sure. In sure. Th- when you see that movie in 3D IMAX. It was revel. I mean, it was just like such an amazing sound and visual experience. And it's not a movie that would work. And so I was like, I love seeing it in the IMAX. I kept yeah. going. There are sequences at the end of that movie that are so stunning, but it would be pointless to watch on TV, isn't it? I, I I've seen it on my TV, and I've seen it in theaters, and and you know, it's fine. It's it's fun with the kids, but it's not. I completely agree. That is a theater experience to its core, and and deserves to be seen the right way. That soundtrack, though, oh my gosh! That, that soundtrack is still one of the main things I work do my work with. <laughs> theater experiences also because you get two of the two of the greatest theater experiences I ever had. <clears throat> pardon me, were uh, Tootsie opening night of Tootsie, and that's a movie that if you see with an audience, it's just such a joy because people are laughing and screaming and yelling and you know all that kind of stuff, but. One of the most disturbing experiences I ever had was I saw, I, I, I graduated college, I was in LA, I went to see Fatal Attraction opening night at Grauman's Chinese, and it wow. was so crowded, people were sitting in the aisles, like it was packed, and the last 15 minutes of that movie, people were standing up in the theater and screaming at the screen, like killer, like it was very upsetting, oh. <laughs> but, but you were just in this environment of the audience was being so masterfully played by Adrian Lyon, the director, like like the entire theater was going nuts. And it was a pretty disturbing but also amazing experience that you watch Fatal Attraction at home, you don't get that, you know? You don't get that. Huh? It's interesting you said that. I mean, for me, I can, I can point to two immediate ones, which was I saw Signs opening weekend in the biggest theater that they had in Phoenix. And... And for, however anybody feels about signs, it's in my top ten of all time. I don't want to go there right now. I love, I love it. That I, just, I watched it the other night. I love it. Yeah, yeah it's great. great film. And with when with people in the theater, it was the first time I had the experience of somebody actually standing up in the middle of the theater and saying, "Man, everybody, shut the f up!" Like because they they were getting so annoyed by all the <laughs> the screaming and the jump scares. Um, and the other one would be I saw The Dark Knight with a, with again on a humongous theater with about four other people because I saw it at seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And again, like you can have these amazing experiences of intimate with nobody there and then intimate with everybody Everyone there. Everyone there. And do you remember seeing, so you remember seeing China Syndrome in theaters right. then, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You can, can you remember like how packed it was or if you saw trailers beforehand or like, tell us more about that no, experience. I, again, my parents and I knew nothing about it. We wandered into it. We had just heard it was a good movie and I was a big Jane Fonda fan and we just wandered into it and it was crowded and it was it was one of those movies where you could just have heard a pin drop. Like in that particular, the last thing you just, you couldn't hear, you could, no one was saying anything because everybody was just like, oh, you know, nobody could breathe. And uh, it was pretty awesome. Another great one for me 
was I saw the Thursday before opening night, so nobody knew anything really about it, Pulp Fiction. And I saw the midnight <laughs> screening. That would have been an experience. When the, the whole needle in the heart sequence, again, like I would love to just experience that 10 minutes again because the audience, the way the audience was laughing and screaming and yelling, it was just so joyful, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, you guys are sharing. I want to share now. Yeah, please, I remember please. really enjoying when you got pre-screenings to Cloverfield. That's a movie that was good in theaters. Oh, the, yeah. The press screening, that was great. But Okay. I got to see Burn After Reading in Paris. And do you know the scene in Burn After Reading, the extraordinarily inappropriate joke that George Clooney does downstairs with his chair? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> the entire audience giggled like normal the entire way through the movie, but in that scene, the audience gave a classic French, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I cherish that moment. That's awesome. So much. Uh, this became a gush yeah. about theater moments. I kind yes. Of oh, just, well, and I'm going to do one more tangent, Nick. Is please, Because I, I actually watched Signs the other night. I'm a big fan. It has one narrative flaw, which is that I think the flashback happens at the wrong time. Interesting. He does Where'd the flat. Oh, uh, okay, there's this moment before that where they're all down in the basement and everything is calmed down and it fades to black. And you there's actually a real chance that they could all die. That's where I would put it. And I think he was worried if he put the flashback a little earlier, people would understand what the point of the flashback was. But I disagree. But also, you're literally in the middle of the final suspense sequence, and he just stops the movie for three minutes for this flashback. So if if you were to lift that flashback up and move it back three or four minutes, that would almost be a perfect movie to me. The way Sixth Sense is perfect. You know, I I, I agree too because what what's funny about that flashback is that's the most memorable joke from Scary Movie Three was they parodied that flashback and it was the explanation of how she was split like a hot dog, no, like a taco, like a donut, like like that whole thing. So I completely agree with you. Um, when I <laughs> it, sorry, I don't want to go back to the theater thing, but just like I remind, I remember now when I saw the Matrix in theaters and. The red pill, blue pill scene occurred, and somebody stood up and said, "Take both pills. Get real messed up." <laughs> but, uh, but you know, with the, with the theater thing, a, a good friend of mine from work that we we fight about this whole thing constantly, which is you know, he's like, "I'll never go to the theater again. I love my home theater. I'm tired of people putting their feet up on my seat and talking during the movie and texting during the movie and all these different complaints." And it was. That was the whole reason I bought AMC stock in the first place over a year ago. I was like, I'm going to show you, man. I'm going to buy this because I want, I want movies to succeed and all these different things. But when you mentioned that you could hear the pin drop, I do, I do miss that experience because I can't think of the last time that I saw a movie that you could have quiet and people be okay with it. Um, I saw I Am Legend on a Friday with a bunch of high school kids, and that was the worst theater experience I ever had because people can't, they can't take a world without noise. But when you look at something like with China Syndrome, like there's such a benefit to it. There's such sure. this intensity that it comes from it. And you don't have to have, you know, Zimmer's like strings and you don't have to have all these intense, like what's, well, what's the hook of the music or what's the Avengers theme of it? Like you can have that moment just be there. And, and I do, I'm sure that exists. I'm in fact, I'm positive that exists and, in, in independent films today and things like that, but you just don't get it with, with mainstreams. And would you, would you say this was a mainstream movie kind of when it came out or would you say it was more towards that art, art house kind of thing? No, no, no. I mean, it, it was mainstream. 
made for five and a half million ultimately, and it made like fifty-five million. It it was a pretty big hit. Three Mile Island, of course, helped it enormously, but it's you know as they were saying on that Cisco Ebert review you sent me, whatever politics or whatever is involved, it works as a great thriller. That's just what it is. It is a consummately yeah. made thriller that gets your chest tight. So and. That's kind of my favorite type of movie. Like, I just love an amazing thriller. So, <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, I am so grateful that you talked me to watch into this movie because <laughs> I probably never, you know, not only would I never have watched it, I probably would never have even thought to watch it, to be frank. And mm-hmm. if anything, this podcast has been great to just watch movies that make other people joyful and excited and get to experience it through their eyes, but also getting to have that first experience for me. So I, I was a blast. Well, so, so trust so me, because I know, you know, politically people have problems with Jane Fonda and that's a whole different discussion, but she is a phenomenal mm-hmm. actress. And there are two, really there are two other seventies movies. I would push anyone to see if they haven't Julia, which we were talking about from 1977, but another like top 10, top 20 for me, I get confused because I have, but is Clute, 1972, Clute. Have either of you seen this movie? I don't, I've not No, but is this one. the one that's written and directed by Michael Crichton? No, no, that's um, Coma, Coma. And Coma is also a great 70s thriller. In Coma, you can, I think, it might even be free on Prime right now. It is on Xfinity as well. Yeah, I, uh, I, show, I teach Coma and I show it to my students and they go nuts. It's a movie they would never watch and they absolutely love it. But Clute... Uh, I'm a big fan of Alan J. Pakula, the director, and he did what a lot of people call his 70s paranoia trilogy, which was Clute, 1972, Parallax View, amazing movie, 74, and then All the President's Men, 76. He worked on all three of them with Gordon Willis, one of the great DPs of all time. The studios hated him. He was never even nominated for an Oscar until Godfather 3 because they, they hated him so bad. They called him the Prince of f-ing Darkness because his movies were so dark. Uh, but Clute, Clute is this, superficially, it's a stalker thriller. It's about a, pro- and I'm not giving anything through it. It's about a prostitute who's being stalked by someone you don't know who it is who's trying to kill her. Uh, Jane Fonda is so amazing that she won the Oscar. She very famously called Alan J. Pakula a few days before the shoot, like two weeks before the shoot, and said, I can't do it. I'm too scared. It's too hard of a part. Get Faye Dunaway. She can do it. And he talked her off the cliff, and then she won an Oscar. But it's one of the most, you've got to see like it widescreen on a, on a big TV. It's a phenomenal movie because it's a thriller, but it's this amazing character study too. Donald Sutherland's amazing in it. Um, Roy Scheider has one of his first big roles in it. Uh, it's terrific. And, another, all right, and, and to keep jumping around, Coma, which I know you're going to love, not only is it just a great, and it was also based on a huge bestseller, Robin Cook's very first book, phenomenal, you know, number one New York Times bestseller, and then Crichton made the movie. And it's interesting because the first 30 minutes are a little different than the novel, and then the rest of it is very much like the novel. And the changes he makes are really smart. But Ed Harris and Tom Selleck both have their first speaking roles in that movie. Uh, Excellent. Tom Selleck is so young and so beautiful in that. And Ed Harris has hair. And Anyway. <laughs> I'm... I'm a colossal Michael Crichton fan. He is my favorite fiction author. Yes. I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. So for the show notes, we got Places in the Heart, Julia, All the President's Men, Clute, and Coma so far. So that'll all go in the show notes. And folks, I'll try to find (laughs) the the best way for you to watch those. It's the middle of the trilogy, The Parallax View, 
which is one of the more unnerving movies you'll ever see. It's with Warren Beatty. It's a riff on the Kennedy assassination. It's phenomenal. Excellent. Really cool, creepy movie. So wonderful. Awesome. Well, well, is there anything else about China Syndrome that you just you got to get out there? You got to let people know, like another reason why they got to see it. I know. You know. I mean. I, I think. We covered it all. I would just say, ultimately, watch it because it's a blast and it is such a gripping thriller. Like I said, my friends who I showed it to the other night, because I was like, I got to watch this movie. Come see it. You haven't seen it. Um, and it was uh, some good friends of mine, Chad and Claire, and their two teenage boys. And um, the youngest boy was talking a little bit. And at one point, Jack, who's 17, he kind of stood up and said, OK, everybody has to be quiet right now. It was... <laughs> it, it was right when Jack Nicholson Jack, I keep saying Jack Nicholson when Jack Lemon dro- drives up after the car chase to the to the power plant and he was like okay no one can talk for the rest of the movie and I was like yes because he was so into it right anyway to hear that from a 17 year old you know is amazing I just gotta say that. that's great oh that's fantastic okay so I'll end with one more theater moment if I might yeah so when I was uh, when I had first moved to L.A. One of y'all might want to Google it. The Franco Zeffirelli Hamlet with Mel Gibson and Glenn Close and Alan Bates and Paul Schofield. A terrific movie. A mm-hmm. great adaptation of Hamlet. And it's really fascinating because Glenn Close and Mel Gibson playing mother and son are so close in age, they have this wild sexual thing that's going on between them because you can tell she had him when she was like 13 and they're attractive. Anyway, um, I went, I didn't have any money. I was waiting tables and a friend of mine was a substitute teacher and they had a screening for high school students on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m. at this huge theater in Westwood. And we went and I got in there and I was like, this is going to be the biggest mistake because these kids are going to ruin this movie. Well, like 20 minutes into the movie, they got quiet and they got so into it. And just as an example... At the end, there's this amazing, you know, there's an amazing moment in the play where Gertrude, the mom, drinks the poison her son is supposed to, her, her supposed to have, right? Her husband has poisoned Hamlet's drink, and she drinks it. When she reached for that cup and drank it, literally all these high school kids stood up and they were like, no, 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 like that. And then they sit down, I'm getting goosebumps again, they sit down, and then Glenn Close starts getting sweaty and everything, and she has like, she's the best, she's my favorite actress, and she has this Glenn Close moment where she real, Gertrude realizes what's going on. And she turns and looks at Claudius, Alan Bates. And the way she looks at him, again, I wish I could just be in there and hear those kids go nuts. Like, they just went nuts. Bunch of teenagers embracing Shakespeare. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I was like to me, it's a testimony of how good that movie was and, and how, po- you know, it was, it was done in a more popular way sure. to reach mainstream audiences. And... It got those high school kids, man. They went crazy. They loved it. That's terrific. I love that so much. Uh, Brendan, did you have a favorite scene in the film? Um, I mean, the end is hard to beat. I, I love the technical stuff, the technical jargon. Like, of course. Going in, I knew all the jargon. <laughs> so I was, it was feed water, <laughs> Barney. I need feed water now. <laughs> right. And, 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 and it was really fun to I discussed with my wife because I I've indoctrinated her and she doesn't know nearly as much about how the operating of it works. But I was impressed to how well she picked up everything on on what was going on there. But because it's just so well done and it's so intense and it's so 
you know, you could feel your heart beating as you know what terrible thing they're trying to prevent happening. So I, I love those scenes where things are going wrong. I like it when exactly. things are going wrong. Yeah. And I loved it towards the end, too, when they had to cut to commercial briefly. Um, they had a microwave commercial. Yes. Just, just a nice shot, little touch. Well, and here's another oh, thing. It's the very last shot. It's the very last yeah. shot. It's the, yeah, it's the very last shot. Oh, it is. Okay, okay. It, it parallels the first shot. But here's another great example of good storytelling. It's when you have layers and layers and layers of tension. So you don't need extra tension in this movie, but there's that great sequence where she's up in Ventura talking to Jack Lemmon in his apartment, and she's like, oh, my God, I'm going to miss my six. And there's this mini suspense sequence where she's trying to get back to the news station, and she literally runs into the station and runs onto the set, right? That's your jacket on the ground. Yeah. 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 And they're auditioning the lady who could replace her and everything. It's like, that's not necessary, but it just adds this other layer of tension. So it's like every scene or every sequence you do, can you find some other way to add a ticking clock or a suspenseful thing or something like that? So. Mm-hmm. And she's rushing back to give a puff piece. You exactly. Know? <laughs> that's the balloon sequence. That's what she does. Yeah. That's right. And that's a lot of hot air. Well, Excellent. Utterly excellent. Well, Professor, I'm going to have you pick a number between 1 and 200. 138. 138 would be Peter Anderson, who did visual effects, but was uncredited for it. That's a bummer. Ah, I hate those uncredited let's credits. Let's see what we got. Yeah, let's take a look at what we got here for Mr. Mr. Anderson, if you will. Um... He was in the visual effects department for this movie. Uh, he is still around to this day. Oh, His top credits are U2-3D. Oh, my gosh. Close Encounters of the Close Third Kind. Are you kidding the me? original Tron. Oh, so at this point, Professor, what we do is we, we find that person in the IMDb credits, and then we IMDb them, and then we just kind of look at what they do. And he, visual effects supervisor for all these movies. He did Godzilla, As Good As It Gets, um, Hunt for Red October, Cocoon, um, Tron, so oh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, um, Galactica, Galactica, the original, but yes, original Battlestar, excellent. And it looks like, if I'm not mistaken, is he still working? Yes, he is. He did the titles oh, on a movie like last you. year. He was in the project development team for the most recent Godzilla movie. He did the Cirque documentary. Um, so it looks like he's still crushing it. And he wrote a also movie. the 1998 Godzilla movie. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the one That's we right, don't so mention? The, that, that which now not be named. The Ma- is that the Matthew Broderick one? That That's is. right. Yep. Yep. You know the one where Godzilla runs away from the helicopter? That's a bad, bad movie. Did you ever read, did you ever read um, Word Player, Professor? No, what's that? That is Terry Rossio's blog that he does. Uh, he and Ted Elliott did Aladdin, all the Pirates movies, and he did Godzilla and... Um, just a ton of movies. He talks about, there's an article called The $100 Million Problem. I can't recommend this article enough because he talks about why Godzilla bombed. And he said, because you have Godzilla, this great monster, this amazing beast that just has crushed all these buildings. And in our version, uh, Godzilla runs away. And Godzilla, you know, it, it, it becomes this more like compassionate mother thing when it should have been like Godzilla should be destroying literally everything. <laughs> now, um, as a Godzilla nerd, I don't yes, think yes. Godzilla Final Wars is a very good movie. It's the it's the Japanese one of the Japanese movies that came out it looks like 5 years after this one. But in it, Japanese Godzilla fights 1998 Godzilla and he kills him in one punch and blasts him to death and it is a very satisfying scene. 
Excellent. Now, and we, uh, were we talking about two different Godzillas? Because I was talking about the Matthew Broderick one. So that so was that's the one that, that's one that you and I were talking one. about. Yeah, yeah right, that's good, the one. Good. Because I actually yeah. like the one, um, what's his name? He directed Monsters and he directed, kind of directed Rogue oh, One. Gareth Edwards. Gareth Edwards. I, a lot yeah. of people didn't like that Godzilla. And I, thought, I like that one. I thought the choice telling the entire movie from the human's perspective was pretty amazing. That was pretty cool. And, and I actually like the human characters more than most Godzilla movies. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting <laughs> story about him. I know we're supposed to end, but I'm just going to go on because I got two more things is a friend of mine worked on Rogue One. And they told Gareth Edwards that they wanted an adult war movie in the Star Wars universe. Uh And that's what he created. And my friend who worked on it said it was unbelievable. And when Force Awakens, or I forget, I get all the, where the first new one came out and did so well, they were like, nope, we're going to make this family friendly and add a robot and do all this kind of stuff. And he wouldn't even do it. And they, they got another director to come in and do a lot of the extra scenes. And I still like that movie, but you get a sense in the last 30 minutes of that movie what his original version was. going to be. Yeah, yeah. And then with the Bad Godzilla, I've got a great story about that director. I'm not going to say his name because I hate bashing people, but everybody knows who he is. So his, <laughs> his first big movie was Stargate. And a, a friend of mine got a job on that movie in special effects. It was his first big special effects job, and he was so excited. And his two jobs were meaningless on his reel because the director was driving through. I don't know if you remember, but at the very beginning of that movie, there's an almost pointless two-minute little prologue sequence that happens in Egypt by a pyramid. And... The director was driving through Beverly Hills and saw this palm tree that he had to have in that shot. Even and they were, he's in Beverly Hills. They're shooting out in Palm Desert, and they go and he makes somebody go knock on the door to this person's house. And this person is very savvy. He's like, "You want that palm tree? You can have it for a hundred thousand dollars." And so they dig the palm tree up for a hundred grand, bring it out to Palm Desert. They <laughs> they plant it, and it's a Beverly Hills palm tree, not a Palm Desert palm tree, and it dies. So my. <laughs> So my friend's first job was he had to recreate the palm fronds on the tree. It took him like two weeks. Like fake palm fronds? Yeah, yeah. Because it was just this empty palm tree. Then they go through the Stargate, right? And they're on this planet where there's no vehicles or anything like that. And they have all these extras. So one day, all the extras are way over in the sand. And they drive the, the food trucks over and feed them and drive them back. And then nobody thought anything. So then they filmed this whole sequence that afternoon and the trucks, tire tracks were in the shot of this world that's (laughs) not supposed to have vehicles. So then his second job for like three weeks was, and this is before you could do special effects fast the way you can now, he had to painstakingly go and hand paint out the craft trucks, tire tracks, (laughs) And so, I was, and so he, all he ended up with working on this big movie were, was a de- they're like, well, I can't see your special effects because it's a desert, and I can't see your special effects because it looks like a palm tree. Anyway. So he oh made fake gosh. leaves, and he painted out tracks. That's And apparently that's most great. of the special effects in that movie were fixing these disastrous problems that happened in the shoot. It was a difficult shoot. <laughs> yeah, to say the least, my goodness. Um, I have a very special place in my heart for Gareth Edwards, specifically Monsters. That was one of the Monsters first movies where great. I thought I could actually do this. And I just. It's a phenomenal movie. I love that. It movie. is. Yeah. If you, 
I mean, that's, that's a great example of just like limitations, like find the limitations and embrace the hell out of them. And I think Gareth did that with monsters and I, I will follow him anywhere. He is amazing. That um, final, the final sequence at the gas station makes me cry. It's just one of the most beautiful and scary things I've ever seen. It's just, it's magnificent, you know, it's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. By the way, uh, to, back to Peter Anderson, I did not notice until I just looked him up, but he actually won an Academy Award, the Gordon E. Sawyer Award. So Peter actually is an Oscar winner as well. <laughs> that is so cool. And a couple years later, he worked with Wil- with uh, Wilford Brimley again on Cocoon. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And he did uh, Captain EO, which they had at freaking Disneyland forever, that Michael Jackson movie. Oh, my gosh. That was terrible. But, yeah, they had it was forever. Yes. <laughs> Yes, terrible is the nice way of putting it. So, Peter, somehow, if you're hearing this, like, we just want to say thank you for the work you did on the China Syndrome, man. Like, you deserve the damn credit, Peter. Like, you've had an amazing career. It looks like you're still working. We hope that you're still crushing it out there, dude. Like, fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you for working on this movie. So, Brennan, to you. So, we could do... Yeah, you know what? I'm cheating. (laughs) We're in Cinema Gush. We try to be positive and upbeat... Uh, I'm just going to pick which one I want. So, say something um, nice. Tom, if you could say something nice about Legends of the Fall, I would really appreciate it. Something nice. Don't. Stop. You're being really mean. <laughs> it, it's pretty. It's pretty. It has great pretty? cinematography. That is great. an excellent compliment. That's a nice thing. Yeah. That is a nice thing. Have you ever seen... Uh, have you ever seen the movie uh, Cool as Ice starring uh, Vanilla Ice? <laughs> no. I have not. Should I rent <laughs> okay. it tonight? It's one of the worst movies uh, <laughs> I ever made. I mean, it's, it's, it's a travesty in, in literally every form. However, and I'm, I'm blanking his name, it's um, Spielberg's uh, cinematographer. He works on a lot of movies. Jer- um, the, the, I can't say his name. Janice... That guy. I mean, I'm he, looking it up because I'm. Anyways, an amazing cinematographer works on it, and the movie's gorgeous. It's the worst movie you could possibly imagine, but there are shots in that movie that that just it, it's it's wonderful how much the disparity between those two things exist, and it's worth watching just for that. Uh, Jan Uz Kaminsky is the director of photography. I definitely butchered the first name for sure, but well, that was something nice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, cool as ice. All right. Um, Love it. So well, yeah, this is, uh, to yeah. wrap things up. You, well, you actually got we're, we're, we're watching watching these days. you got me to say something nice about legends. That's great. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. Pretty is what I say to my dog when I want him to sit on his haunches for a trick. I say pretty, and that's what he does. Ah. <laughs> uh. All right, so but just uh, at at the end, we always like to talk about kind of what we're what kind of media we're watching, consuming, reading, anything. So I guess I guess we'll start. Tom, what are you what are you watching, reading? You know, I, it's kind of the golden age of TV. So I've been watching. Uh, and I, yeah, I've been. You know, what I'm a big Shit's Creek fan. I'm a big Fleabag fan. Um, yes. You know, here's the one I'll pitch that a lot of people might not have seen is uh, Normal People on Hulu. It's one of the best TV shows I've ever Normal seen. People. 12, okay. 12 episodes, half hour episodes. You can get through it quick. It's not like, you know, infinitely long. And it is so gorgeously done. It is pretty. Um, but it's it's extremely deep and very moving. It's about 
a boy and a girl in high school that fall in love and it traces their lives for about four or five years and it is a phenomenal piece of television. I have seen the trailers for this. I will add that to my list right now. Absolutely. That will put that in the show notes too. How about you guys? Um, Brendan, do you, you want to go first? or uh, You go. Okay. Um, so continuing from last week, um, I'm going to get butchered again because I get butchered every week. I am still reading Tolkien for the very first time. I am more than halfway through Two Towers now. Um, so that has been extremely enjoyable. Um, I'm still kind of going through some random anim- animes that have been recommended to me. Um, I freaking love the hell out of Violet Evergarden. That's like the prettiest stuff I've ever seen in my life. Like if, if, if anyone out there doesn't watch anime, like it's cool. I get it. I know why you think it's awful or whatever, but like, you've got to check out Violet Evergarden on Netflix. Like, holy hell, it is so insanely gorgeous i mean uh, i can't stop t- recommending that show to people and they're like oh it's anime i'm like no no no, no please just give it a shot so can i can i, um, can I ask because i don't tend to like that kind of stuff and i will watch it but a friend got me to watch i think it was called love death and robots or love sex and robots and yeah, yeah yeah that was terrific absolutely terrific and the other one i will throw out because i refuse to watch it for like two seasons and then a good friend of mine who I trust made me sit down and watch it. And it's also one of my favorite TV shows ever is Bojack Horseman. I need okay. to do that. I, I, I need love, to do that as well. Love death and robots is one of my favorites. I go back to as comfort food, but I Bojack Horseman has been sitting on my to-do list forever. It, I mean, yeah. and it is as savage a look at Hollywood as imaginable. And it, it's so good that in the last <laughs> few seasons, all these big stars played really awful versions of themselves. Uh, so that's pretty funny, but it's, and as it got more popular, they start in the last seasons to be able to, they just let, they gave them complete free reign. And there, there's some episodes there that will blow your head off. Like what they were able to try and do. There's even one that, you know, has no dialogue and there's one that's all locked on camera. Anyway, it's pretty cool. Excellent. That's awesome. Well, I'll check that one out as well. Um, and then there is a podcast I just started checking out. I think it was Cinema Magazine. I think that's what it was, the British one. They just have, they just today put out a three-hour kind of co-interview between uh, Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright. And so I'm about to just like, I'm right, right? I'm about to pour myself like a nice tall glass of wine and just like sit and like listen to it at one time speed and just hear like two of the greatest filmmakers ever just talk so um, that's, that's what i'm that's what i'm enjoying interview. yeah brendan what about you so i can't remember this is actually a couple weeks ago but i don't think i've mentioned it on the podcast we sat down and, and finally saw uh blood simple the coen brothers first movie oh. what'd, what'd you think i i, I enjoyed it it's it, it's uh it's different it's weird what you can definitely see that it's coen brothers but it's but having grown up on more modern coen brothers you could definitely see it's early coen brothers mm-hmm. i very much enjoyed it and at the same time it was a weird experience. Like it, 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 it feels, it feels out of time a little bit. And maybe that's the, the, the pacing and the editing. And uh, but no, I enjoyed it. Can, um, can I tell a story about that one? I just got, I got all these stories. Oh no, please. So well, so one great thing about that movie narratively is that by the end, in the world of the movie, no one in the movie will ever figure out what happened because the only. Everybody, sure. everybody just has a piece of the puzzle and half of them are dead. So the people who are alive will never be able to figure it out ever, which is kind of cool. But obviously the Francis McDormand part, and that was her first big film role, is, was made for more of like a Kathleen Turner film fatale. 
And the casting director brought her in on a recommendation. And when she saw her headshot, she was like, well, she's not going to get cast because she's not like this stunning Kathleen Turner-esque kind of, you know, femme fatale in a norm movie, but uh, we'll bring her in anyway. And when she walked out, Joel Cohen turned to her and said, that's who I want. And the casting director was like, wow, that's weird. But okay, you're the director. You get what you want. And then, of course, they fall in love and get married and have been married forever. And the casting director then said, wow, he fell in love with her when she walked in and she was his Kathleen Turner. And that's why he put her in the movie. That's amazing. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, I I saw, I really enjoyed it. And I thought she did an amazing job in it. Um, This weekend, we finally sat down and got a chance to watch Tenet. And I think I really liked it as much as anybody (laughs) can know if they really liked it. Right. Um, I've never seen a movie that felt so much like a Sudoku puzzle, <laughs> um, where so, you you know that there's a there's a there's narrative through here, but you've got to solve it to actually understand what you've watched. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also never seen a movie that uh, so clearly didn't care if you didn't understand what you were watching, which I kind of respect, but also it's hard to think about more so than Primer. Would you say? I haven't seen Primer. Oh, Primer, I love yeah. Primer. Primer's awesome. That's another, I, I, like, I don't no, care if you I, get I've this I've always or not. wanted to watch Primer, but I haven't gotten around to it. Gotcha. Primer has um, one of so the yeah. best oh shit moments of all time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that, that sells it for me. So, I mean, <laughs> the thing is, I was already, I've always been sold on Primer. I just, it's just eluded me to sit down and do it. Um, I finished uh, Raised by Wolves, and I think I liked it too, but it's... <laughs> It has high marks and it has some drawn out TV stereotype sci-fi Ridley Scott stuff, but I was happy to go on the journey. Um, that's the main things. I'm still. Uh, What's the? Um, I haven't seen this. The guy who did Ex Machina. I'm a big fan of his, but he did a TV oh, show. Oh, Is that the, the one you're talking about? Yeah, and he did a TV show that friends of mine either absolutely love or they think it's the worst thing they've ever seen. I've heard very good things about it, but I've not seen it. I want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's hard. I, I always like everything Garland does. Yeah. And you've got me interested with Raised by Wolves, too, because Aaron Guzikowski, like, Prisoners is so um, insanely good. I have I that, that script. Like, What's I actually printed there? that script out. What's that? What's the connection between the two? Uh, Aaron Guzikowski was the one who created Raised by Wolves. I didn't, really? I didn't know that because Prison, he wrote it. Prisoners is also oh, one of my okay, okay. Prisoners is also a, a masterpiece. That is a dark, great movie. Wow. Yeah. I, Dilly Villeneuve is, I mean, I'll follow him to hell. Arrival. <laughs> arrival. I, I couldn't get up at the end of Arrival. I was crying so hard. Like, again, I knew nothing about the movie. I went into it and I like I lost it at the end. I could not get up. I was crying. The mm-hmm. short story it's based on is one of my all-time favorite sci-fi stories, and to watch how beautifully he transferred that to the screen was a magical experience cool. for me. I mean, well, that's, a, that's another big moment for me is towards the end of that movie when you think all of her thoughts are flashbacks, and when she has that moment where she goes, who is that girl? And I just remember going, <gasps> you're like, what? What? Like, th- this can't be true. They can't have, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. It, it, the, the yeah, and they captured it so beautifully. I, that's the thing. So I, again, I, I used to actually teach that short story in, in a sci-fi class I taught to high school students, and so it was one of my favorites to watch them come to that moment. And he captured that 
that experience so beautifully and yeah now i'll watch anything that man does i i to me i think the best movie going experience i've had in the last decade is probably going to to blade runner 2049 for the first time i i, I love the guy um mm-hmm. but yeah so that's that's kind of what i'm doing so excellent well did you notice that moment in uh tenant brendan in the first eight minutes where they had the auditorium and the gun shootout did you think that we should have been extras there like we were in dark knight rises i i assumed you were i, I was on the other side of the hall you weren't there no. Um, again, we're joking. But me and Nick were both extras in The Dark Knight Rises. Um, yeah. What's the, which night. scene? Where? Where? We were in the, the football scene, the NFL scene. We're, we are uh, black and yellow splotch number 7,452. It was a beautiful 16-hour day that started at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> All right. That, I can I, that since we're that 70s, can I throw out one more amazing 70s movie yes. that I bet a lot of people haven't seen? Oh, yeah. Please. Black Sunday. Black Sunday. Okay. It's 1979. Um, Robert Shaw is in it and Bruce Stern and this amazing uh, actress, Martha Keller. It is one of the great slow burn thrillers of all time. Like it starts off, it starts off with that action sequence. And interestingly enough, the main character is this woman who is a terrorist. She's trying to do something bad. And, Y'all, this movie, is, but the, the last 40 minutes of the movie take place at the Super Bowl. And they filmed it at the Super Bowl. They put CBS mm-hmm. logos on all the film cameras. And no one knew that they were there. And so in the, in the end of this movie, which takes place at the Super Bowl, this big thriller thing, Tom Landry and Roger Staubach and all these people, they're all like walking by the cameras and... You, you see Robert Shaw just standing next to Tom Landry, like on the side, and there's a sequence where Robert Shaw runs through. And, and what's cool is the, the reality is, is there's this stadium filled with 80,000 people. So it gives the end of this movie this amazing, you know, kind of documentary feel. Like it feels even more real. It's, it's something you could never do today, right? That weightiness, so, yeah. Yeah, but it is a terrific thriller. I mean, you have me at Brewster in Nebraska is, I love that movie. Yeah. Going back to last week, talking about great black and white movies. Yeah. Also, and, and, and also movies. a great John Williams score in this movie. Oh. Awesome. Did you know Black Sunday came out on April 1st, 1977? The novel, right? Or was it the movie? No, it says the initial release. The movie came out on April Fool's Day, 1977. Interesting. I thought it was 79. Okay, cool. Huh. It was worth a watch. And I think it's free on Prime right now, too, unless it went off. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. Well, this has been an insanely great podcast, Professor. Thank you so much for coming you on. The next time we have you on, I'm going to challenge you to, at the very least, give me your top 20 films, 11 through 20. Okay. For sure. (laughs) So. A delight, man. Thank Thank you you. for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks for the movie recommendation. Uh, What a great film. Yeah, excellent. So, folks, we'll catch you all in the next one. Have a great night. All right. Goodbye, guys.